0: everyone and welcome to vlga connect and the governance update it's the flagship of the vlga connect brand and it's all because of stephen cooper hello stephen
1: hello chris i'm not sure about flagship but good to be here thank you
0: master and commander oh stop it have you ever watched that bit, movie? It's That's a, a bit, bit Russell Crowe
1: for a Friday morning, please don't.
0: Yeah, but it's it's a good movie. I'm not a big Russell Crowe fan, but I did enjoy that movie. But I digress right at the outset. We have we have quite a bit of governance related news to talk about uh this week. Can I start with um the announcement of a brand new councillor in our midst at Mornington Peninsula Shire, Stephen, after a countback during the week. Um, and welcome to Susan Bissinger.
1: Yes, and congratulations to, uh, the. in fact, I'm not sure, I think it's Councillor-elect Bessinger at the it moment, um, a uh, a vacancy that was occasioned by the resignation of uh, Councillor Hugh Fraser after a number of terms on council. Chris, did you think that the, um, I'd forgotten about the uh, the countback process that the VEC ran when I went to look. A couple of hours after it had been conducted, as to the fact that the announcement couldn't be made immediately.
0: Yeah, I did, and look, I had intended to to watch because there was a process you could register and watch the the countback online, but I caught up doing something else, so I had exactly that problem. Had to rely on media reports to work out what the outcome was for the purposes of the of the podcast. But you're right, um, the the councillor elect. I'm not sure if we technically at that point could say that she was councillor-elect, had to complete a declaration that she was still qualified to be a councillor and had 48 hours to do that before any sort of formal announcement was made.
1: That's right. And then I understand. So we might be in councillor-elect phase now and that at some point over the next week or so, the new councillor will will take the declaration
0: and oath of office. So I can tell you that that is Tuesday, the 20th of April. There will be the oath of office followed by the swearing in prior to the council meeting they have scheduled for that evening.
1: Good news. And again, congratulations to Susan Bessinger for that.
0: Indeed. And also on council law news, we're going to whip up north to Queensland, a long-running saga there involving uh, seven former councillors of the Logan City Council who were facing fraud charges. And this is over an employment matter relating to the employment of a former CEO. Um, finally, the CCC, I think it's the Crime and Corruption Commission up there in Queensland, yep. has has dropped the charges for, I think lack of evidence is probably a, a suitable way of summing it up. Um, so, so it's all over. But it's been a pretty torturous and tumultuous time to get to this point.
1: Oh, Chris, so much to unpack on this one. How much time
0: have we got? Um, What are your thoughts, Steve? Clearly, you have some thoughts.
1: (laughs) Um, I thought it it is an employment matter, or maybe it was a disemployment matter because the issue arose out of the um, actions that were taken to end the employment of um, the CEO, Sharon Kelsey, who subsequently achieved reinstatement. Um, So there's the first point. I think another point I'd like to make early in this one, Chris, is, of course, our regular warning to viewers and listeners that we are not lawyers and nothing that we say should be taken as legal advice. These are observations by people who think they know a little bit. Um, (laughs) So much to unpack because, of course, the other part of this, Chris, which I think is the part that made the story newsworthy, is that the Local Government Association of Queensland have come out very strongly um, condemning the Crime and Corruption Commission and... Uh, seeking an apology to those councils because um, of the fact that um, the the criminal matters for misuse of position didn't proceed and therefore suggesting that the decision to suspend those councillors um, was ill-founded.
0: I've been pretty strong on this from the outset, pushing pushing that line, and uh, not only have they called for an apology, they've called for an independent inquiry into the whole process. Their view is that something like this should never be allowed to happen again. And I think their view in summary is that the, the industrial relations commission or something similar would have been an appropriate, uh, venue for the, for the matter to go, but not the crime and corruption commission. Um, is that a fair summary?
1: Yeah, I think that is the view, Chris. And Um, I've got to say, I tread a bit nerve. I've got a fairly strong view, but I tread a bit nervously and anything I say, um, Really, we are distant from it and we are looking through a Victorian local government lens, not the lens of the local government and integrity regime in Queensland. So in terms of our listenership, there's probably some issues in terms of the Victorian context that need to be taken into account. I don't know, it's sort of a question of where you start, Chris. The one for me, um, it's probably worth describing too, what is... um, speaking generally the suggestion of corrupt conduct and in some ways um, it's a pity that this matter wasn't prosecuted because um, remembering that misuse of position is improperly using your position to advantage or disadvantage another person or entity and there are lots of examples of a person holding public office using their position to advantage themselves or another entity. This one was unusual and really would have been landmark because the CCC, I think, was suggesting that the councillors had acted improperly in terminating the CEO's employment and had not gone through due process. And ultimately, that was going to run to court. But at some point, um, as you say, the decision was made that there was insufficient evidence and it it was called off. Can I suggest too, Chris, that's not especially unusual at all levels um, of prosecution that, you know, if you think about it as simply as um, even a parking ticket, um, in my mind, the parking officer as an authorised officer has the requirement to observe and report. Um, There is a process that is gone through. If the infringement's unpaid, someone will make a decision as to whether the matter is actually prosecuted at a court. at a more serious or criminal level, each state would have a Director of Public Prosecutions who would make that final decision. And that's a necessary check and balance. Um, You don't want your investigators second-guessing the DPP. Their role is to provide the advice to DPP, you know, with a view to getting them out of the court. So the fact that CCC thought that there was an action, DPP decided that there isn't. I don't think it's especially unusual. Um, As I said, there's probably just a bit of a disappointment for the wider sector because it would have been really good case law to have and to get better understanding about what's appropriate treatment of um, CEOs and those holding office.
0: The other element I think that Bear's mentioning here, Steve, is that that council was dismissed and in large part due to this, this issue. So flash forward two years or whatever it is to the matter being dismissed for lack of evidence etc you've got to then ask the question well was it appropriate and fair that the council be dismissed at the time and for the reasons that it was
1: yeah it's a really that's a tough one Chris I think um now how do I how do I sort of describe or unpack this Ultimately, I, I believe what happened was that a substantial number of the councillors were stood aside because of the pending legal action. As a consequence, the council wasn't able to function, and therefore, the council was dismissed. Let's move. Let's drive back down the Newell Highway um, to Victoria. Mm-hmm. What's the circumstance? What's the like circumstance in Victoria? Um, well, we know that the Chief Municipal Inspector has the power to recommend to the minister that a councillor or councillors be stood down if there is prima facie evidence of bullying and or such inappropriate behaviour to enable um, the conduct of an investigation. It is conceivable in Victoria that if a sufficient number of councillors were caught in that situation, that a council would become unworkable. And as a consequence, there would be no option for the minister of the day, but to suspend a council I think the thing that struck me about it all, Chris, was this notion that um, I think should be quashed that a failure of governance at a council might invariably um, include um, criminal conduct, that um, Hmm. the requirements of the Local Government Act, even if you start with sections 8, 9 and 27 around the governance principles and also the requirements of a councillor, those can be breached routinely without anyone committing a criminal offence. And if it happens often or frequently enough, you would have a, a failure of government, governance sufficient that the community's not getting value from their council. So in a sense, I kind of think um, for, for the Victorian context, it's a bit of a diversion from the main game. If there is calls for an investigation into the conduct of an an agency, um, transparency would dictate that that's a good thing that that might happen. Um, But let's not be distracted into thinking that, um, that poor governance requires an element of criminality.
0: Very interesting. I hadn't thought of that element of it, Steve. Um, Thank you. I I think that's probably about all we should uh, say about the matter. I think there'll be more. Uh, We'll certainly see what sort of response LGAQ gets from its call for an independent inquiry, etc. But there's, you know, there's always something, isn't there, to Uh keep us interested in the world of local government.
1: Yeah, and look, isn't it that point, Chris, that one of the, the glorious elements of local government is that we're all human and we all act on emotions and what we think's the best at the time. Um, and at times, even even with the best laid plans, things don't go as well as they should. And it's really important to come back to sort of, you know, process and strong principles in terms of how we, we operate, which might actually include, and I know you want to talk about it, um, Arrangements for managing the contract of the chief
0: executive officer. Let's do that one now. I was going to leave that to last, but seeing as you've opened the door, <clears throat> there's a bit of CEO news around. Firstly, let's. Um, um, I just want to note interesting story out of Queensland again. The CEO of the Gold Coast has resigned after three weeks in the position. It's been a bit of controversy around this. Um, the gentleman David Edwards, I think is his name, was uh, appointed um, a little while back. Um, before it became known to the councillors that there'd been some some earlier issues uh, in state government that that had been um, sorted, but uh, councillors said they weren't aware about it. Um, it. It's apparently due to health reasons, though. I have no reason to doubt that that's that's the case. Also, this week, the city of Fremantle CEO has announced that he is standing down one year into his second contract, wanting to achieve work-life balance. We can all understand that aim has had some health scares, um, apparently in recent times as well. Um, so you know, there's lots of change happening at that level all around the country. And of course, as we've said before, there's about 14 still unresolved in uh, Victoria, and we're moving into a phase where councillors need to turn their minds to these new requirements of the act around CEO employment and remuneration policies, which has got to be in place by the end of the year. And I imagine your advice would be don't wait till November. <laughs> to think about how you're going to do this piece of work.
1: No, I think that's right, Chris. It's not something that um, we need to. It can't be done in a stepwise basis where let's get the st- the strategy stuff out of the way first, and then we'll just you know put together these policies. Um, organizations uh, recruit, um, deal with resignations and so on, uh, manage. Um, their executive and staff performance all the time. It's an ongoing process. And we've got a really good opportunity for councils now over the next six months to use that day-to-day business to inform these policies um, that will be adopted um, at year end. So it was what CEO, employment and remuneration policy, Workforce planning policies, I think it was remuneration policy. Uh, um,
0: recruitment, recruitment um, policy.
1: policy. Um, that's right. So there's a really good opportunity for not just councillors, but CEOs and executives to start gathering good information in terms of, you know, how we should inform this this policy work when it's
0: done later in the year. Absolutely. So it's probably one we should come back to. And I know Hannah Duncan-Jones is due to join us. It might be next week. I need to double-check the calendar um, and always brings us up to date on where we're at with implementation of LGA 2020. So I'm sure that's a topic we'll uh, we'll get to touch on with her.
1: It will be. Chris, I just wanted too, um, just on that topic before we go. So councils mm-hmm. in, in particularly since we've come back from Christmas in February right up to now have been doing policy work and um, most councils will have in place at the moment a, um, a committee or an arrangement to uh, manage the, uh, the employment of the chief executive, including um, target setting. So I would have presumed there's some, um, there's some good advice and some good people out in the sector that can assist councils in terms of um, how to actually build that policy work, the implementation of policies uh, into the accountabilities of the CEO, to keep the council themselves at that high level, that strategic level, uh, but to give council sufficient comfort about the um, the accountability of the CEO,
0: I feel like I have to make a declaration of interest here, Steve, because uh, you know part of what I do these days is work with CEOs and councillors around performance review processes and objective setting, et cetera. So I'll just put that out there and make no further comment on what you've uh, what you've just said. There is another story uh, that's, that's reared itself this week that I think is worth mentioning, um, not necessarily dissecting too much at this stage, but Hume City Council has made a decision this week to challenge a decision of the planning minister, Richard Wynne, to amend the Hume planning scheme, which would give uh, the effect basically or, or, or make it um, possible for the contaminated spoil from the Westgate Tunnel Project to be stored on a site at Buller. The council's very determined and says the community is equally determined that that should not happen for a range of reasons. Um, So they're going to challenge that in the Supreme Court, which is not a light step to take. Oh, big
1: step for a council to go um, to the Supreme Court in relation to a matter opposed to the state government. Not uh, as happened on numerous occasions before. There's a number of um, uh, councillors... Uh, Councils, sorry, that are um, investigating that in relation to the Greensboro Road link. There have been councils in the past that have gone there in relation to clearways, you know, a number of other activities. The thing that struck me, Chris, and and in my non-lawyer brain, I'm not exactly sure of the detail and really warrants some more uh, thinking, but historically when state government embarks on a major project, there is enabling legislation that gives typically extraordinary power to government to ensure the completion of those projects. I recall that was the case with CityLink, uh, with the conduct of the Commonwealth Games as two examples. So there is a rich history in terms of state government delivering projects that uh, typically there is legislation that is very powerful that gives ministers um, greater powers than you would expect to see on a day-to-day basis. I would presume that that will come into play in terms of the, um, the obligations of Minister and that and that uh, role of the Council under the Planning and Environment Act. So, yes, watch this space.
0: Another one to keep an eye on. Thank you, Steve. And now I know um, you're heading off from recording this to your governance advisory network, am I right, for the LGA, which uh, I'm sure you're looking forward to?
1: Absolutely, Chris. We've got uh, a group of governance managers coming along and we're going to be talking about uh, training requirements or uh, how the VLGA can support councillors and officers over the coming 12 months. So that's going to be a really interesting conversation. And just to plug too that next week uh, we're running a, and I'm co-chairing with Susan Rennie, Dr. Susan Rennie, um, an event on... um, municipal public health and wellbeing plan and its role in relation to gambling harms in the community. So anyone that particularly councillors interested in their role in relation to the health and wellbeing plan, get on the VLJA website and um, feel free to register to that one.
0: Thank you, Steve. I'm sure they'll be well attended and much appreciated. As is your uh, presence and contribution to the governance update every week. Thank you again. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Chris. Good to talk. Steve Cooper with us. He's the Chief of Staff of the VLGA, you know, coming up in the world. Uh, and he joins us each week at this time on the Governance Update on VLGA Connect. Mm-hmm.